You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, this evening, we uh, have our guest speaker for our Writers Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department, and I have the distinct honor of introducing our guest speaker this evening, Dr. Stacy Patton, who is an American journalist, writer, author, speaker, and college professor, and commentator. Patton has written for such publications as the Washington Post, the Dallas Morning News, and The Root. She is a former senior enterprise reporter for the Chronicle of Higher Education. She is a professor of multimedia journalism at Morgan State University's School of Global Journalism and Communication, and founder of the anti-child abuse movement, movement, Spare the Kids, Inc. In 2012, Woman's Space of Mercer County, a nonprofit organization which provides help for victims and survivors of domestic and sexual abuse, sexual violence, awarded its annual Barbara Boggs Sigmund Award to Patton. She has won reporting awards from the William Randolph Hearst Foundation, the National Association of Black Journalists, the Scripps Howard Foundation, the National Education Writers Association, and she was the 2015 recipient of the Vernon Jarrett Medal for her reporting on race. Patton is also the author of the memoir, That Mean O Yesterday, and this evening she will discuss her current work, Spare the Kids, While Whooping Children Won't Save Black America. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Stacy Patton to the Pratt Library. Isn't she gorgeous? <laughs> I hope I look as good as you later on. Good evening. Um, thanks so much for coming out um, to join me in this conversation this evening. Um, I hope it'll be a fruitful one. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about why I decided to write this book. Um, uh, but first, I want to show you a video clip. It's pretty disturbing, so I'm going to warn you. But this will uh, launch into the conversation. And uh, after I speak a few minutes after uh, showing this, I'll read a few passages from the book. And then we can open it up to a Q&A. You guys ready? All right. Okay. I'm going to hit the play button, which is over there.
a slain teenager defends what he calls an act of love. The Terrytown teen made internet headlines after he was seen being disciplined by his uncle proclaiming to be a gangster just last week. The young man was shot to death outside of his home. Illustration one, we have something called the rise of digi-punishment. Parents picking up their cell phones to record themselves, shaming and whooping their kids. We saw an uptick of this after Toya Graham uh, was declared an international hero for wading out into the middle of a race riot and going upside her son's head. People saw her as... Uh, a good parent intervening to save her son's life. And so this gave validation to this type of behavior. And so suddenly we started seeing parents engaging in these acts. But I want to ask, how did we get here? How did we get to a point where so many people click, like, share, um, and take to the comment section and say horrific things about black children? using all kinds of derogatory terms to describe their humanity. How do we get to this point where we market black children as menaces, as problems, as you know, little people who need to be uh, dealt with violently? Where does this idea come from? How do we become a people who say, I'm not in jail today, um, I'm not smoking crack, I'm not in trouble, I'm alive because somebody whooped me? How did we get here? Why do so many people think that they turned out fine? So I decided that I needed to write this book after the Baltimore um, riots. Um, months before that, I had appeared on MSNBC and a few other channels to talk about the Adrian Peterson controversy. You know, Adrian Peterson, the football player who beat his son with uh, some switches. And, uh, and then I remember being at home and uh, I had bronchitis. I was very sick. And the, 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 I, I actually call it the rebellion started. I woke up and I saw these kids throwing rocks at the police and I actually cheered for them. You know, I sounded like the godfather's twin sister. I was like, go babies, go, you know. And um, I saw resistance. I saw what these young people in Baltimore doing what young people in South Africa did, where young people 
uh, throughout history have done when people don't listen to them, when they feel disenfranchised, when they're frustrated, when they feel like folks aren't fighting for them or uh, listening to their, their issues. And so then I woke up again, and I saw this woman in yellow hitting her son. And I thought, what is she doing? Why is she doing this? She's going to be a hero tomorrow. And as I predicted, all over the blogosphere and the mainstream news, she was being heralded as a hero. And so an editor from the Washington Post two days later reached out to me and she said, Stace, I know you have something to say about this. Uh, please give us 1,500 words by tomorrow. So I got up and I went to my home office and I pulled out a file folder that this, that's this thick with newspaper articles of lynchings of black children, which is the subject of my next book. Uh, victims as young as age four and even two. Um, and so I found this one article from the late 19th century uh, and it described a young teenage boy who had stolen something. And so the white men uh, had, uh, you know, uh, strapped him down, called his mother, and they described her as this buxom, loud, sassy mama who comes out, you know, storming towards her son, cussing, and she takes his pants down and she whips him with a strap in front of these men. And then the article goes on to report that she actually lynched him in front of them. So I took that article and I sat it on my table and I kept watching that scene over and over again with Toya Graham and I saw the parallels. Now Toya did not lynch her son literally but she strung him up for um, the world to see her embarrass him and you know on any other given day she may have caught the attention of law enforcement or child protective services but because she had done this in the service of restoring you know racial order she was a hero. And so I wrote this piece, and I went to sleep. The next day, I woke up to a storm of nasty tweets, email addresses. That my newsroom got, you know, all kinds of complaints that I needed to be fired. That still hasn't changed now that I'm at Morgan State. Um, and so it was clear to me that black and white people's philosophies aligned around one thing that black children need to be dealt with harshly. And so it was pretty discouraging, you know, seeing that. And um, so that was sort of the impetus of this book. My first book was a memoir, which was much more personal. But with this one, I want, this is not a parenting guide. So people always say to me, how can you write a book about, you know, uh, how to raise uh, children when you're not even a parent yourself? Depending on my mood, sometimes I'll say something like, well, if I am a doctor who wants to treat prostate cancer, must I have a scrotum of prostate and cancer to do it? Um, but this is not a parenting advice guide. This is a book that looks at the historical roots and the cultural logic uh, behind uh, this practice within African-American communities. Um, a lot of people will say that whooping children is a black thing, and I say that is absolutely false. Uh, 70 to 80 percent of Americans hit their kids today. That number is still very high. Uh, there's been a, a, a slow decrease for the past 40 years since Dr. Spock wrote his uh, famous uh, treatise on it. Um, but 
every state has a law that says uh, that defines how you can appropriately hit a child's body. Uh, 19 states, mostly in the South, allow children to be paddled with wooden boards by teachers and administrators, um, with parents signing opt-in forms. Um, and interestingly enough, when you look at a map of those states, it actually reflects the top 10 states. So that we have the top 10 paddling states, then we have the top 10 lynching states. They're exactly identical, okay? Um, people don't realize that in every state with the exception of New Jersey and Iowa, it is legal uh, to hit kids in charter and private schools. So we are still a country that whoops kids. So people say, you know, they make these arguments that these kids today are so bad, that's because they made it a crime to beat your kids. It's not illegal. Uh, 30 other countries have made corporal punishment um, in all areas of children um, illegal. Oh, more than 100 countries have banned corporal punishment in schools. So the U.S. is, is behind on, on this issue. Uh, if you hit your wife or girlfriend um, or your husband or you know, boyfriend, it is a crime. It's domestic violence. If you hit an animal, it's called animal cruelty. But with children, they, they are the only group where it is codified in law to assault their bodies. Um, and so... Um, what I want to do with this book is to dispel a lot of myths about where this came from. I have, you know, black people tell me all the time, well, you know, we bought whooping over from Africa. And I'm like, how do you know that? And they're just like, this is just what we do. You know, white people do that timeout stuff. White people, their kids grow up to beat them and kill them. And they become, you know, mass shooters. And I'm like, show me the data on that. Okay. Um, you know, so I hear these kinds of ridiculous arguments. And so then I have to tell them that actually uh, whooping is perhaps the whitest and most effective thing you can do to destroy a black child. Um, so I have to go back and tell them how the majority of the captives who were bought from the principal regions of West Africa, where African Americans are descendants from, um, they were the majority of the captives were children. They were teenagers and children. Um, it, for much of the slave trade, the average age of, the, of captives was between 12 and 20 years old. That age dropped uh, right before 1808, before the um, trade, um, the international, uh, there was an international ban on uh, the slave trade. The average age was between 8 and 12 years old. Okay, so if you look at some slave voyages and their, their numbers, you can see that there are some instances where the majority of ships were actually children. So you have this enterprise that's built off of the destruction and exploitation of young people. And so if all of these folks were adults who came from the same tribes, who spoke the same languages, who practiced the same you know, religions, who held the same conceptions of childhood, and who had come here with a universal uh, blueprint 
for parenting that was un, you know, uh, uh, in, impinged upon by their slave masters. Then maybe people could make the argument that whooping was something that we bought over from Africa. But instead, what you had were young people who hadn't completed childhood themselves, who hadn't parented anybody, and they were taught this um, within this context. And then I hear people say, well, the Bible says spare the rod, spoil the child. No, it doesn't. That's not even a Bible verse. The verse is, he that spareth the rod hateth his son. Now, you got to know a little Hebrew to talk about what a rod really means and what the word hate means and, and to dissect those other five verses in Proverbs that talk about using a rod to guide children. You know, um, sh- shepherds used rods right? They didn't beat the sheep with it because sheep were, were very valuable. You didn't want to damage a sheep. So if a sheep got sort of wandered off and got caught in a hilly area, you'd take that, that rod and pull them back in. The only time you wielded uh, um, a, a uh, rod was to ward off wolves to protect the sheep. And so then I tell them, well, you know, y'all are real conspicuously silent about the other ver- ver- um, verses in Proverbs that talk about beating adults with, with rods as well. Or what about thy rod and thy staff comfort me? Does that sound like a whooping to you? Um, I also say, well, why cherry pick? Why don't we, you know, bring back sacrificing kids, drowning babies, uh, bashing their, the, the, the heads of infants of other people who are different so they don't grow up to be competitors with you. Why don't we make our daughters marry their rapists? If your son disrespects you, let's take them out into the community and let everybody stone them to death. Let, let's not cherry pick. Let's bring back the whole Old Testament. Or we can do what Jesus did. We can treat children with kind hands, coddling, snuggling. Jesus said that you know, we should try to emulate um, uh, children. So, so there's all those justifications grounded in religion and so on and so forth um, that I hear all the time. There is absolutely no argument, no logical argument for corporal punishment that I cannot dissect with surgical precision. You know, I hear black parents say things like, well, if I don't whoop my child, then the police officer will uh, beat or uh, kill my kid. Well, the police should not be beating and killing kids to begin with. But let me test your theory. Show me the numbers and the annual numbers of police officers who are killing um, unarmed children. Now, we have seen instances, Tamir Rice, Mike Brown, you know, we know those uh, cases that have grabbed headlines. Um, But if you look at the annual child maltreatment reports that are put out by um, the Children's Bureau every year, over the past 10 years, African Americans have killed over 3,600 children. That's an average of 360 kids every single year as a result of maltreatment. So you put those numbers next to the numbers of kids who are getting killed uh, annually by police officers. Now, I'm not discounting racism um, here. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not one of those uh, cons- political like conservatives you see of Fox 5 talking about black-on-black crime. But the fact is, is that black children are more at risk of being assaulted, seriously injured, or killed by their own parents. That, that's just the truth of the matter. Okay, so um, so I, I I wanted to write this book to uh, uh, get at some of these myths, to talk about the historical roots of this issue, 
um, and how it got implanted in our cultures um, and uh, why we think it's such a good thing, how we believe this idea that it's going to keep us safe. Um, people say, you know, if I don't beat my kid, uh, he's going to end up in jail. And I'm like, well, how's that working for African-Americans? If whooping uh, was so effective at keeping black people out of jail, then why have we been for decades now having conversations about mass incarceration and police brutality? Uh, whippings never saved black people from being lynched. It hasn't saved black folks from being abused by the police. It hasn't improved our communities. It, it, it hasn't uh, kept us safe from structural racism. If anything, what it has been is counterintuitive. And uh, I talk a lot about the foster care to prison pipeline and the school to prison pipeline. Uh, so we have disproportionate numbers of black children who enter the foster care system every year because of child abuse. And a lot of parents are genuinely surprised when they're standing before the police or a judge and, um, you know, for, and they're being brought up on ch uh, charges for child abuse because they've beaten their kid with switches or belt or extension cord. Um, and they're, they're, they're genuinely shocked. Like, this isn't abuse. This is how I was raised. So we are a people who don't even have a universal definition or a perception of what constitutes abuse. And, uh, and so then our kids uh, end up in the foster care system where they stay longer where since the late 1990s, the number of children who are given psychotropic medications, foster children who are given psychotropic medications, has soared since the late 1990s when I was a foster kid in the system. And a disproportionate number of kids who get psychotropic medications are black girls. So you have a child welfare industry that's run by predominantly middle-class white women um, who have their own perceived biases and understandings of black behavior, black bodies, and, and other kinds of racial ideas that don't always go checked. Um, and so they make these decisions and interpret our children's behaviors, their grief responses, their responses to trauma, and so on and so forth. Uh, they don't contextualize it as that. Instead, these kids are angry. They're deviant. Put them on some medication. Instead of giving them the therapy that they need to, to heal and to navigate and be empowered by the time they uh, uh, age out of the system. And so, so many of our kids end up in the foster care system, and they also get arrested. So the foster care system is this fertile ground that is uh, facilitating uh, uh, far too many of our children through the juvenile justice system. California and Illinois um, took um, uh, surveys of their adult prison population, and they found between 70 and 80 percent of their adult prisoners had had contact with foster care. So there's something deeply wrong here. You have abused and traumatized and neglected kids who are entering in a system that the state is saying we need to intervene to protect these kids from their parents, but at the end of the day, they end up putting them on the same path to, you know, uh, uh, the prison system. So I, I wanted to provide information on what happens. What you know, if you hit your kid, you put them at risk for all of these different traps. And we've got 50 years worth of science that has shown that uh, corporal punishment is. Um, you know, is, is a very harmful thing. So a lot of people say, well, there's a difference between spanking and abuse. What you're talking about is a continuum of violence. At the end of the day, it still involves hitting, and it involves pain, and at the end of the day, both 
have the potential of putting children at risk for the same negative karma, okay? And, and plus, you know, a child's body doesn't process the pain differently because a parent wants to engage in sugar-coated semantics to make themselves feel better about, you know, hurting their children's bodies. So we've got 50 years of science that shows the impact that this type of parenting practice has on, on children's brain development. Um, so, you know, you get these people who say, you know, uh, I was whooped and I turned out fine. And I'll look at them and say, that's a sign of brain damage. There's nothing wrong with my brain. You know, so they're yelling at me now. I'm like, emotional regulation issues. Logic and reasoning is totally harmed here. And so, you know, I have to explain to them that when you hit a child, it is akin to a bear coming at us or somebody pointing a gun at your head. So your body goes into instant fight or flight mode. Your heart starts pumping, your breathing changes, your palms get sweaty, your stomach goes into knots. You want to fight back or you want to flee or paralysis sets in. And so you set off, the parents don't see this, they, they set off these biochemical responses that even after the child stops crying, after you've threatened to give them something else to cry about if they don't stop crying because of the pain you you caused, right? Um, then hours later, okay, they cannot see the biochemical responses that are still going on in the child's body, in their brain, in their adrenal glands, in their stomach, in the liver, in the kidneys. This is a form of toxic stress. And the accumulation of that over time weakens a child's immune system. Not only does it harm their brain, the prefrontal cortex of the brain, the area you need for cognition, uh, executive functioning, and memory, uh, and, and emotional regulation, but also the immune system. So later on in life, um, you know, uh, you, 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 set the, you set the foundation for things like obesity, um, high blood pressure, stroke, joint issues, uh, cancer, uh, and even a lowered lifespan. The scary thing about it is we know something about epigenetics and how toxic stress also changes the genes. So let's say you have a child and you whoop your child, but then your child grows up to see, oh, I'm not doing this to my kid. They, and they have a child, that child can also inherit those gene changes and be susceptible to the same types of chronic um, uh, health problems that you, the parents, sowed the seeds for uh, uh, decades earlier. So I talk about this from a scientific perspective. I talk about this from uh, uh, the perspective of comedy. So why do we have so many mostly black male comedians who get up and joke about beating their kids. Kevin Hart jokes about punching his infant daughter in the throat for wanting juice. Bernie Mac threatens to, um, you know, beat his uh, uh, nieces and nephew to the, the white meat shows. Uh, so what, what is this comedy about? What are we masking? You know, when you have a people who come from the same culture with the same values, who don't see anything wrong with being beaten, who as a collective won't even acknowledge that they've been traumatized by their parents, by the larger society, what do you do? You go and you watch these kinds of horrific uh, videos and comedy and you join in for a good laughter instead of getting therapy and doing the hard work of trying to come up with a healthier uh, strategy for raising kids. Um, so I I'll stop with that little rant.
right now and read a few passages, which is customary to uh, book reading, uh, just to give you an overview of the chapters. So chapter one is called A Family Conversation. Um, Chapter two is called A Love Whoopin', Reflections on the Adrian Peterson and Baltimore Mom Controversies. Chapter three is called Extending the Master's Lash, The Historical Roots of Whooping Children in Black Communities. Chapter four is Would Jesus Whoop a Child? Black Clergy on What Sparing the Rod Really Means. Uh, Chapter five, You Always Were a Black Queen, Mama. How Black Boys Who Are Whooped by Their Mothers Grow Up to Mistreat Other Black Women. Chapter six, Talk to the Wood or Go to the Hood, The Campaign to end paddling in southern schools. Chapter 7, I'll bust you in the head to the white meat shows, why black comedians joke about whoopings. Chapter 8, don't be a fast girl, how hitting your daughter can trigger early puberty. Chapter 9, the parent to prison pipeline, how Wisconsin's first black district attorney connected hitting children to criminal justice outcomes. And chapter 10, sparing the rod, testimonies of black parents who stopped hitting or never whooped. Okay, so y'all ready for this reading? You guys? Okay. I mean, because if it's too much, we can, you know, we can just stop and talk, talk about all this. All right. Okay, so I'm going to read a few pages from chapter three, uh, Extending the Master's Lash, the Historical Roots of Whooping Children in uh, Black Communities. Uh, One of the things I talk about um, when, when, when I tell people that whooping um, children, your uh, black child is the, the whitest and most effective thing you can do to destroy them. Um, I, I, I tell them that we don't begin this discussion um, within modern day African American communities. We don't even begin it on the plantation. We don't even begin it in West Africa. We have to go all the way back to Europe. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of that right now. One of the saddest untold stories in American history is the ways that its victims of racial oppression and violence have hurt the bodies of their own children in an effort to protect them from a hostile society. While physical punishment is so deeply rooted in the American way of raising kids, history provides a clear explanation for why so many black people embrace this harsh form of discipline while falsely believing that whooping children is something uniquely black. Looking to the past can help us understand how and why this society, which intentionally chips away at the vitality of black life, continues to demand this vicious cycle of abuse against black children, even as it disproportionately criminalizes us for doing it. The fact is, white America has long derived power from assuring that black children are victims of physical, intellectual, psychological, and spiritual violence, and that the people raising them are complicit in their abuse. This is what white supremacy requires. Indeed, black folks have imported violence into our culture by embracing the idea that whooping our children will garner freedom and acceptance from white America and usher our communities into safety and prosperity, but it's never worked. So then how did this violent child-rearing practice become so deeply implanted into our culture? Why do so many of us believe that if we spare the rod, then all hell will break loose? Or that we will lose our black card or dishonor the legacy of our loving elders who whooped us so we wouldn't grow up to smoke crack, be a welfare queen, uh, go to jail, or worse? 
We must journey through a few historical time periods to lay the foundation for understanding why whooping children is a practice that did not begin with us, but got etched into the DNA of our bodies, memory, and culture, even as white America gradually moves away from this kind of violence when it comes to their own children. Hitting and abusing children has a long history that's been part of virtually every culture and society dating back to biblical times. The Bible itself is full of scriptures sanctifying child abuse. Think about Abraham, who nearly sacrificed his only son as a test of his faith in God. King Herod massacred innocent babies in a failed attempt to kill Jesus. Lot had drunken sex with his daughters. Young female sex abuse victims were required to marry their rapists. God sent two bears to murder 42 kids who had made fun of Elijah's baldness. And let's not forget Psalm 137.9, which praises bashing the heads of babies to prevent the rise of a new generation of Babylonians. For 2,000 years of European history, going all the way back to the Greeks, whose worldview can be seen within modern Christianity, adults deliberately exploited, tortured, raped, and killed their own children. Lloyd DeMaus, the controversial psychologist and historian, wrote, The history of childhood is a nightmare from which we have only begun to awaken. The further back in history one goes, the lower the level of child care, and the more likely children are to be killed, abandoned, beaten, terrorized, and sexually abused. For the most part, DeMaus and other scholars have painted a dark and horrifying picture of childhood in Western societies. European parents beat their young with catanine tails, shovels, canes, irons, rods, and sticks. Infanticide was common and unpunished due to poverty, the need to limit family size or to eliminate political rivals, and because people believed that physically or mentally disabled children were the handiwork of the devil. During antiquity, in the Middle Ages, about half of babies born were killed by their take caretakers, and not just poor parents. The ruling elites had just as high rates of child killings. Children were burned, shaken, tossed about, and flung into rivers, trenches, and heaps of animal manure. They were intentionally starved, castrated, thrown into fires by their parents as sacrifices to gods, cooked and eaten as part of fertility rites, fed poisons that plastered their insides, rolled in snow until they froze to death, sealed into walls and the foundations of bridges and buildings, and abandoned on hillsides and roads where birds, dogs, and wild beasts scavenged and devoured unlucky waifs. In ancient Greece, a disobedient son could lose his tongue, eye, or fingers. Greek infants born with deformities were considered unfit to be raised and thus killed in order to preserve ideal racial characteristics. Young boys and girls suffered routine sexual molestation by older men. A young person could be kept as a pet child for entertainment and pedophilic gratification or sold into slavery or hard labor by a parent as payment or collateral for debts. Even as late as the 19th century, American medical journals reported regular findings of sexually transmitted diseases on children's genitals and mouths when their parents had the disease. From royals to regular folks, centuries of Europeans grew up with severe beatings being a part 
a regular part of a child's life. This is of little surprise given the dominant beliefs. According to some historians, the modern vision of childhood as a distinct and bound phase of life, one of innocence and insulation from violence, did not begin to significantly take root in Europe until the early 1600s. Before that, many children did not have the right to be free from violence. That right was granted only to adults because adults defined themselves as free and moral against the unfree, immoral, and criminal young. Countless diaries, letters, autobiographies, and medical reports detail routine mistreatment of children throughout history. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that all European children suffered abuse or that all European mothers and fathers from the past parented with hardened, sadistic hearts. Parents across cultures and times, whether they were German or British, French or Greek, loved their children displayed uh, tenderness, worried about them, and showed interest in the stages of their development. Some even advocated for more humane treatment of the young. At the same time, many European parents also lacked the capacity to respond to their children's developmental behaviors with empathy. As DeMauze explained, it is, of course, not love which the parent of the past lacked, but rather the emotional maturity needed to see the child as a person separate from himself. Naturally, this harsh treatment of children, along with the desire for land, profit, fame, and a religious zeal to civilize and convert the poisoned souls of the native people to Christianity, bred a culture of adult violence which drove conquests, colonization, slavery, and genocide. In fact, these practices were rationalized through seeing Africans and indigenous people as children whom they felt free to brutalize, rape, and kill. As a result, for white kids, a different worldview developed. By the 17th century, white children were slowly categorized as innocent and therefore entitled to claim rights against the violent treatment that was endemic to childhood before that period. By the 19th century, with changing attitudes about children's welfare, beatings gradually decreased for white children. Although it did not disappear, it turned into a milder form of punishment called spanking. For centuries, childhood for Europeans was a period of systematic violence, labor exploitation, enslavement, and sexual abuse. But when Europeans sought to enslave Africans, they imposed the category of child on them and modeled their racist system of exploiting black bodies on the long-standing ideologies of childhood and the brutal treatment of children in order to justify their enslavement. By the 17th century, a separate and unequal definition of childhood gained traction, with, chi with a childlike status encapsulating the permanent inferiority and savagery of blackness. In other words, white people began to recognize the vulnerability of their own children and had to rescue them, if only partially, from this unthinkable close proximity to blackness and the brutality of childhood. White adults began to reconceptualize white childhood as a newly developed space of innocence, promise, and security. As such, white children were imagined as partial adults who could be gradually guided out of savagery and into whiteness by being educated and perfected to their highest potential and afforded special protections because they would mature into future beneficiaries of white civilization. Black slaves, on the other hand, 
even in adulthood, were by definition irredeemable, wild animals and eternal children whose bodies were always ready sites for exploitation, control, and brutal treatment. The only people who are fully categorized as children today are racialized. In other words, there's no such thing as a white child. There's only whiteness, which is a form of privileged adulthood. Likewise, there's no such thing as a black adult. There's only blackness, which is always a form of dehumanized childhood. And so the bodies of underage and adult blacks occupy the same unprotected, unprotected space of childhood and continue to be subjected to the same racist violence. In other words, black children are exempt from the protections young people should be granted to play, run, get dirty, and make mistakes. Their innocence is denied and negated as they are viewed as stereotyped black adults. And they are treated accordingly in schools, in public spaces, and sadly, within their own families. Long before the first Europeans landed on this continent to build a model Christian nation, they had grown accustomed to doling out sexual and physical violence against their own children, who they regarded as savages. That brutality cascaded across generations and continents and got transferred into other cultures through slavery and colonialism, while white people gradually began sparing their own children from brutality. It shouldn't be surprising then, ladies and gentlemen, that traumatized black people in America eventually inherited their oppressor's violence and carried it forward in much the same way to their own children. And that's that. And now time for some vodka. <laughs> So I guess we'll open it up for questions. Is there a microphone? I do that with my students, and they actually look horrified. They kind of believe me. They're like, that's a lot of vodka, Dr. P. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much for a good presentation. I had a question because I noticed that there is a, in the African-American community, there is an increasing number of, of the community that's going into Islam. Have you done studies as far as behaviorally with the Nation of Islam or other Islamic groups here in this country? Um, are they, how are they disciplining the young people? Are they doing it in the same way or how is that possible? I just was wondering. So Thank I you. haven't studied, that's a great question. I haven't looked at how Muslim Black Muslims are raising their kids, um, you know, in West African societies. So the, major the majority of the um, captives who were bought here were either Muslim or they practice other traditional um, uh, African religions, worshiping Orishas and so on and so forth. Um, n none of them were Christians. Um, we'll get to that later. Um, but there are some narratives, some old narratives of how um, young boys who were training, who were reading the uh, Quran, learning the Quran, studying the Quran, they'd have the teachers who would walk around with little switches, and if a boy didn't, you know, recite the verses correctly, they'd kind of swat at um, his legs. But the kind of ritualistic violence that we see, we see, like we saw today. Um, did not exist in, in the, those cultures. Um, what I do know about 
um, the impact of religion in this practice has mostly been focused on uh, uh, black Christianity, looking at the ways in which um, religion, there, there's been some studies that show that uh, one of the major uh, influences on how African Americans uh, raise their kids is, um, is religion. Um, so for some other groups, it's their pediatricians. They listen to other professionals. But in our communities, pastors have huge influence over the ways in which they raise their kids. When you look at um, child abuse case files and the parents are being probed for why they you know, hurt their kids, why they're parenting this way, they'll cite, spare the rod, spoil the child, or my pastor said so-and-so. And there are a lot of people who don't go to church who you know, will say, spare the rods, pull the rods. That's the only misquoted scripture they know uh, in a lot of cases. Uh, it's a good question. I haven't seen any kind of study that parses out by race and by denomination. You know, the a whether the AMEs beat their kids less than the Pentecostals um, versus the Muslims and, and so on. What we do know is that uh, when we disaggregate by race, 70% of white Americans and Latinos um, just just under 70 percent um, uh, use corporal punishment. Uh, folks will say the Bible Belt, uh, you know, is uh, more embracing of this than folks in in the North. Uh, but we also know that about 80 percent of African Americans um, beat their kids. Um, so this is something that crosses class, re uh, region, and religion within our culture. Yes. Yes. Um, so the question is, is there correlation between uh, whipping, spanking, whatever you want to call it, and substance abuse? Yes, we've had about 50 years worth of science on close to 200,000 kids. Um, and one of the risks that um, you put your child at when you hit them, and we're not talking about the stuff you saw here, just, just swats right, um, is that you put your kid at risk for substance abuse, um, you know, alcoholism, drug abuse, and so on and so forth, because of the, the brain damage. You're shutting down, you know, parts of the brain that can control for emotional regulation. When you start hitting your kid, you wire their brain to try to figure out how to escape pain rather than developing the other cognitive and social skills um, that, that they'll need later on in life. Um, you know, the studies also show that you put your kid at uh, risk for depression and suicide. Uh, and if it's not drugs and alcohol, it, it could be eating. So we're seeing correlation between obesity and kids who don't get positive touch and are being hit. They, you know, they go and they eat um, uh, to, to deal with those, those sorts of things. We also see a disturbing overlap between um, uh, corporal punishment and sexual abuse. So I was in New Orleans last week doing a lecture at Tulane, and I spent some time at the New Orleans Child Advocacy Center talking with the folks there to get a sense of what they're seeing coming into their office. And so, and I found this to, to um, jive with what I was doing in, with this book. So you have, um, when, you, when you hit your child, you basically tell your child, my body is not my own. People can do whatever they want. And so the folks in New Orleans were seeing, um, you know, kids 
who were coming in for physical abuse, but they had also been sexually abused. And so when they asked these kids, well, why don't you say anything about the sexual abuse to your mother? And they would you know, universally say, because I thought I would get a whooping. And so I interviewed uh, close to 50 black women for this book. That didn't get in the book because I was like 50,000 words over. I have that problem of writing too much. Um, so I ended up using it for a different article. I, I interviewed all these black women who had experienced sexual abuse as, as children. And, you know, one young, young woman said to me, well, I didn't disclose because at least it wasn't a whooping. So she had to make the choice over which violation felt better, you know, or you had parents who were whipping their girls because they caught them touching themselves. And so then when Uncle Ray Ray did the same thing, they thought, oh, if I tell, I'm going to be beaten for this. Um, so it was just very disturbing to see the, the connections, um, you know, between that. So when you hit your kids, you also put them at risk for sexual predators who have a sixth sense uh, for these types of children who are, you know, vulnerable to this kind of, uh, of abuse. Yes, sir. Uh, <clears throat> yes, I um I've been wondering about this myself for some time. I can't say I have any scientific knowledge of it any, uh, to any great extent. But I've been thinking about it for a while. Um, I, I know that in, in my own family, immediate family, there didn't seem to be a lot of it, but in, uh, uh, say, a family of cousins, there was a lot of it. And um, <clears throat> I won't say that my cousins are whacked or anything, but I don't think they turned out as well as they could have. Um, but I'd done some reading here and there. I know when I was um, st- when I was still a student, I'd read Rich Rice, Black Boy, and I was, one thing I noticed was continual beatings over and over and over again. And I remember reading something by Ralph Ellison, who talks about an essay called Richard Rice Blues, and he was trying to make sense out of it. And part of the making sense out of it seemed to involve, well, I guess one aspect of what you're talking about. That is the belief of these parents, and of course he's, we're talking about the South too at this time, Mm -hmm. Uh, not only the South, but the belief of the parent, if I don't do this, uh, this kid is going to, you know, be lynched or what have you. And one, I remember one part of Black Boy, when Richard Wright resisted whipping from an older male relative, um, uh, the male relative said, you're going to end up in the gallows, right? In other words, you don't get to whip me, then white folks going to get you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. there are a couple of them wondering about that. One, I'm wondering, I'm not sure, if you're talking about the period of slavery, and even Jim Crow up in the fairly recently, it's hard to say, for me to say whether some of the stuff that was done was sort of an unavoidable evil, but which can hardly be uh, excusable now under these circumstances. But at the same time, the thing you just mentioned, that some... Africans who brought here were children. And so their formation hadn't taken place yet, so their socialization then happened under slavery. And I've read a number of writers who talk about, you know, oppressed people often internalize their oppression. Mm-hmm. It becomes a part of them, and they act it out in their relationship to each other. And that includes societal violence. And Fanon talks about this, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering whether, particularly since, at least in some quarters, people say we are seeing the development of new 
quote unquote movements or what have you, with BLM or what have you, whether or not it would not be of some value within these new movements to think about addressing the internalized violence, mm -hmm. right? Um, so in a very real sense, when you talk about the mother, I, I remember that, because I was here in Baltimore, you know. When I saw that, I was just literally sickened to my stomach. And when she was first glorified, put in the media, I says, okay, so she violates the son, it just becomes, in her view, it prevents her from him, and she puts it on top of being another Freddie Gray, but what it also, which I'm not so sure about, by the way, but what it also seems to do is tame this kid to make him more subservient, in fact, if anything, mm -hmm. to white supremacy. Yeah. I don't know. It, it seems to me that in any, if there's going to be any new initiative along any new movements, whatever, that is a feature of oppression, the internalization of it that we have got to address. I'm not sure to what extent it was a, an unavoidable and even necessary thing at one time. Even mm -hmm. uh, if it was... Not, I can't see that it can be considered necessary yeah. now, but the problem now, how over 250 years, how we've internalized it, though. So uh, you brought up a lot of really good points. Um, let me focus on this generational lie. It is a generational lie that you have to beat black children, that you have to be tough with them. People think it's somehow liberatory to beat your child so that they can develop this exterior shell to prepare them for something harsh. So the world is messed up and is going to kill you, so let me beat you as much as I can <laughs> first. Uh, so it is a generational lie. Um, you know, black parents, you know, will say, I have to do this, or the government is going to do it, the police is going to do it. Black people have been saying this since the plantation. If you read WPA narratives, looking at, you know, the experiences of slaves, you'll hear, you know, the voices of enslaved mothers uh, saying the same thing. If I don't do this, the mass is going to do it, or you're going to get sold away, you know, things like that. And what the plantation experience did is it created a kind of elusive black parenting. The only real power that, um, you know, when we look at the long durée of American, African-American history from the plantation to now, the only real power that black parents have ever been afforded is the power to uh, break and beat and destroy their children just enough so that they don't grow up uh, to be able to destroy the superstructure. So this, that, that generational lie has its roots on the plantation. These slave parents uh, believed that it was better for them. It gave them something to control, right? It gave them authority over something. And when you are a powerless people, when you don't have any real economic power or political clout, when you feel like you don't have a voice, when there's always the acquittals, right? There's not the recognition of your humanities. When you have to declare to the world that you're a human being in 2017, you have no control over anything else, you reach out to the most vulnerable and use their bodies as altars for your frustration. So this is why I see a lot of defensiveness from parents when I say, don't do this. I talk about the historical roots of the problem. I talk about how we have a really pathological conversation around this issue. I talk about the science. I give them the data and everything, and they get angry with me. And I've convinced myself that this anger is, you know, if you take away my power to beat my child, what else do I have? What other power do I have in my life? 
My adoptive mother used to do the same thing. She used to say, if I don't beat you, then the white man is going to beat you. If I don't beat you, the white man is going to kill you. So I'm like eight years old, and I was a precocious eight-year-old and a mouthy one too. I used to say, who is this white man she is talking about? Is it Bob Barker from The Prices, right? You know, is it Alex Trebek? I didn't know who this white man she was talking about. So she was, and, and I didn't grow up in the hood. I wasn't, you know, one of those so-called stereotypical single-parent houses. This was a middle-class family. We lived in the suburbs. They put me through private schools. They went to church. We went to Sunday school. They were respectable. So we weren't dealing with the neighborhood traumas, the poverty, the stresses, or whatever. My adoptive father wasn't knocking her upside her head. You know, there wasn't any of that. But she was using racism and fear of the police to disguise her cruelty and to legitimize what was happening to me. Rather than doing the hard work of looking at her own traumatic childhood, she was a child of sharecroppers from Mississippi. Her grandfather was lynched by the Ku Klux Klan. You know, her parents beat her and, you know, their kids because there was the real fear. I'm not discounting the fear, but it is not an excuse to, you know, harm your children's bodies. So she inherited those traumas and she meted them out onto her adopted child. And I tell people I was whooped so good that I wrote a book about why we shouldn't, (laughs) you know, whoop our kids. But, uh, you know, so, yes, it is something that began on the plantation Uh, Yes, it is one of those parroted arguments over and over again. And yes, I do believe that any movement, uh, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, um, or others, needs to understand, once again, that black, destroying black childhood is foundational uh, to white supremacy. I told you about the fact that, you know, the majority of the captives brought here were children. Um, right now, my, second, my third book, I'm, I'm writing about the lynching of black children. I'm revisiting the four, over 4,000 cases you know, that we know of, the names of the victims, and looking to see how many were children. We know all the names, but nobody stopped to ask how old these victims were. And so far, I've cross-checked 200 names. 92 of them were victims age 19 and under. And so I'm batting almost 50% here. And so... You know, unfortunately, I might walk away from this by saying during the Jim Crow era, it was still about the destruction of black children. Okay, and so white supremacy, once again, is about destroying humanity. The first logical step in that process is to seize and destroy black children and to trick their parents into participating in the process and calling it love and protection and Jesus wants you to do that. Yes. Who's next? Well, if you destroy black children, you destroy black adults. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, when I first saw that you were coming here, one of the first things that came to my mind was the episode of Good Times with Penny. And it had such an impact on my life. And I just looked it up, and it actually came out a year before I was born. Mm-hmm. So... I wasn't even around when it originally aired, but it had, I remember it. How did that impact culture at the time? And I'm going to be 40 next year. Mm-hmm. That came out a long time ago. So it must have had some kind of cultural impact at the time. 
when you say it must have had some kind of cultural impact. It was a very disturbing episode. Mm -hmm. I remember it. Mm -hmm. And it had an effect on me. Mm -hmm. I think your answer is when you when you watch that episode, what do you hear? What, what do you hear? And people have been circulating that episode on Facebook lately for some reason. Really? But the thing you hear is laughter and applause. So it was, I don't remember that. I remember her being scared mm-hmm. and upset. That's what I remember. So are you talking about the scene where James Evans beats Michael's friend? Is that the one you're talking yes. about? Okay, yeah, there's definitely laughter. Okay, and when you look at the comments, if you see, if you look up that episode on Facebook and YouTube, you'll see people applauding it. We need more James Evans. I love James Evans. He was a good father. I think so many people are so desperate to have a black man in the house that he could be in there raping, beating, you know, and look at the way he treated his wife. He was always throwing things. He was a bully. And if you say that, you know, oh, you're trying to tear a black man down. He was one of our cultural icons. So, you know, we have a very, you know, uh, disturbing relationship to some of these black male figures, whether it's Cosby or James Evans, and you can't say anything about them, what they did in their, their actual lives and what they did on television. And see, here's the thing. I go back to what I just said. White supremacy requires the destruction of black children. So you see this celebration of James Evans destroying a child, right? Toya Graham destroying her son. Now, how powerful would that have been if Toya Graham showed up and grabbed her son and hugged him or just grabbed his hand and walked away? There would have been no story. You know, I did a little experiment on Facebook last week where I said, you know, name one thing that you love about black children. And it was a beautiful thread. You know, folks were talking about their, their laughter, their rhythm, you know, those sort, their in, you know, being inquisitive, their ability to just tell the truth. And I had about a dozen white people who came onto my page and said, all children are beautiful. Why does this post say anything about black kids? And then it was just over and over again, we kept seeing that. And I said, you know what, you've proved my point. Anytime we see black people upholding our children, loving them, focusing on their humanity, their beauty, their talent, treating them kindly, it upsets the racial, it upsets the racial paradigm because it shows we're not participating in their destruction. Yes. First of all, I want to congratulate you for what you're doing. It takes, uh, I'll call it holy boldness to do what you're doing. And it is revolutionary. Um, I'm an African-American pastor. And it must have been about two years ago, I was in Florida. And I was talking with um, a psychiatrist pastor. After I had mentioned something about sparing the rod and spoiling the child. And he shared with me... Um, from another perspective about the rod being um, some guidelines given by God in raising your children rather than the rod being something that you use to strike a child with. And so therefore, his interpretation was that if we spare the rod, which are the written guidelines as to how you raise your child, Mm -hmm. then we're spoiling the child. And so in listening to you, I'm, I'm feeling racism as a part of 
the process of the degradation of African Americans. And I'm also looking at ignorance, lack of knowledge. What you're doing is you're bringing knowledge to the forefront, which is power if we use it. And um, my ministry specializes in giving persons hope who suffer from the disease of addiction, primarily drugs and alcohol. And so in listening to you, I can see how an individual who is raised in a family where corporal punishment or whipping takes place could be pushed toward a drink, Mm -hmm. pushed toward a drug Mm -hmm. to avoid pain, which pushes them toward prison. Then you talked about obesity, mental illness. Um, My grandfather was a slave. My father was in his 50s when he had me. And my father whipped me and my sister in raising us. And I took it for granted that this is what happened. And I'm guilty as being a pastor in promoting some of this. My question to you is, what is your alternative? So, let's first deal with religion. I've said a few words already about the misinterpretation of the rod. I think the first step is we also have to grapple with how African Americans came to Christianity. Um, You know, as I said, the majority of the captives who were bought here uh, were not Christians. Um, They were either Muslim or they practiced traditional religions. The first 100 years that our enslaved ancestors were here uh, in North America, they were not Christians. They did not practice Christianity in any significant numbers. Actually, white slave owners were reluctant to try to convert Africans to Christianity because they didn't want them to get filled with the idea that they could be equal, that they could experience spiritual salvation um, in this life. Uh, it wasn't until the Great Awakening that we started to see uh, significant numbers of conversions uh, to Christianity. So African Americans have only been practicing Christianity for a little over 200 years. So we need to deal with that fact. Now, I'm not a Christian. I'm a heathen. I don't believe in God, okay? Uh, but I respect our churches. I respect them as institutions and how they got us through from the invisible hush harbors on the plantation through the civil rights movement to some very progressive churches that are taking on this issue. Um, What I have a problem with is toxic ministers who stand behind their pulpits and promote violence against our children and then shake their heads like, why do our communities look the way they do? And so I have been working with folks in Dane County, Wisconsin, New Orleans, and I'm going to begin doing some work with Safe um, Harbors, hopefully here in in D.C., uh, to build safe sanctuaries, um, to come into churches, to start conversations with clergy, 
um, about the intersections of race and parenting and the role that religion plays in this. And to we're not trying to like lecture people and get into theological debates or interpretations of the Bible, but just the facts. Reverend Dr. Bishop so-and-so, take a look at this map. Here's where your church is located. You see that little blue pin? That's your, that's your church, Grace Emanuel Church of Black Jesus Christ, right? That's where you are located. And these little green pins around, those are the child abuse cases from last year. You see the little red pins? Those that represent fatalities. Reverend Dr. So-and-so, this is your church over here in this neighborhood. This is what's been happening. And so we need to show ministers in very powerful ways that they have a deep influence over the ways people in their communities, um, you know, uh, raise their kids. Now, when you stand in your church and you say, spare the rod, the blueness of a wound cleanses away evil, and a mother or who's frustrated, who's trying to do the best she can, who's not getting any help, hears that, and then she goes home and the rod becomes a switch or a belt or an extension cord. Are you, Reverend Bishop Dr. So-and-so, going to show up at the police station to pay her bill? Are you going to uh, uh, stand before the judge and testify on her behalf? Are you going to take her child into your house so it doesn't go through the foster care system? That's what we've been telling. That's what we've been trying to do in Dane County, Wisconsin, for example. But we are getting fierce backlash from ministers who are just holding on um, to uh, their rigid, very fundamentalistic interpretation of the Bible. We could make so much progress on this issue if we could get pastors on board to stop promoting this uh, and to make their sanctuaries uh, safe places where parents can come and learn about the basic science of child development, about brain science, about positive, painless parenting. So how do you, uh, 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 Sanks, you know, uh, teach your kid not to touch a hot stove without hitting them? There's a way to do this. Let me show you. I mean, we could heal so much because I think it is this kind of destructive, unacknowledged abuse, which is at the, the, the root of you know domestic violence in our communities, the gang violence that we're seeing out here, the um, you know uh, other c- chronic health problems that are going on in our communities. You you change this parenting process uh, practice, and you could heal so much in our communities. But we have to undo centuries worth of cultural and religious and 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 you know social conditioning. That's the first step. And so we have to start looking at our own childhood right? Just the way that we were raised and really have some honest conversations. I want people to know, look, I didn't write this book to shame pastors. I didn't write this book to shame black people at all. But to say, look, you can say that your mama and grandmama and your minister was wrong and still love them. You can still love them, but we've got to change the way we, you know, deal with our kids. So laying out what I, we're doing in Dane County, making safe sanctuaries. I mean, I, I kind of like uh, tailor that to you because you're a minister giving you some hints about what you can do in your own church, uh, teaching parenting classes and so on and so forth, talking about positive parenting, brain development issues, diet, because some of this at the root of this is diet. You're giving your kids all this sugary, toxic food that has all these hormones in it, and then it's messing with their brains and they can't sit still and they're acting out, and then you beat them because you fed them some stuff that makes them act this way. <laughs> so we need to have some education around food culture, um, you know, as well. 
Um, if you want some basic practical tips on what you do to deal with these day-to-day -day struggles, I have a website. It's called www.sparethekids.com. It takes on everything from bedwetting to lying to stealing uh, to all these very normal developmental behaviors, talking back, what do you do? Your kid is lying, what do you do? You know, my child bites me. No, you don't bite them back. Here's what you do instead. You need to understand why children do what they do. Okay? I hope that answers your question this time. Sparethekids.com. Okay? Okay. And, and perhaps this would help too because, first of all, I found the video to be very very disturbing, the video. And um, I was amazed at the statistics over the majority of parents who still abuse is under the age of 40, which for a baby boomer, we had very strict parents, so we came away with a message that we're gonna raise our children differently, be, give them a little bit more freedoms. But however, I wanted to get to the piece of how do we move forward with helping parents, and I think why do they choose or have a reason to whip or beat to begin with. And I think in my experiences working with families who come from abuse and neglect, that parents are unable to distinguish between what's a normal behavior mm -hmm. of a normal age appropriate behavior versus what is mental illness in a child. So I think having that conversation in the church as well as compassionate parenting, speaking with the language of love, how do you differentiate between what is just bad behavior versus a child who is Being mentally normal, ill? Or, so yeah. you would have to deal with that child totally different in your disciplinary mm -hmm. practices if you knew that, hey, my kid is struggling with some other issues that are not age appropriate, that is not the norm for a child that particular age. And I think until we get parents um, aware of what is mental health and what it looks like, because we think it looks like somebody that's decrepit and walking around where they look like you and I, and also the schools as well, because although they may not be whipping physically, mm -hmm. but they're beating our kids down oh, yeah. to the point that you can call it traumatic and it is abusive. So I think parents along with educators and other caregivers and particularly in the church as you said, you have to understand those dynamics in order to oh, really definitely. help these And I think also, you know, a lot of times when I, I give the, this information in a very holistic way, the data, the history, all of that kind of stuff, then people kind of say, well, what do we do? What's the alternative? It's like talking to white people about racism. Like, you're just like, it's structural, it's this, it's that. You go through all these layers, and then they get frustrated and they're like, well, I'm a good white person. What do I do? Give me a 10-point plan to fix this, you know? So we got to be the doctor and the patient, too. But I think that the other, the first place to begin with is yourself. A lot of these parents have to deal with the ways in which they were raised and their own unrecognized traumas. You have, again, you have parents who say, I was whooped and I turned out fine, so therefore I'm going to whoop my kid. And I'm like, that's not good parenting. That's retribution. Okay? So let's deal with that. Why are you whipping in the first place? You know, what has happened to your own body, your own brain, to the point where you can't express yourself to a child to get them to do what you'd like them to do or to listen to them, that you resort to hitting you know, adults are much more complicated 
and weird and crazy and annoying than children are. But somehow we can exercise restraint and not knock somebody up inside their head. You hit kids because they can't defend themselves. Okay, so we have to have parents who start looking at themselves, looking at their own fears, their own egos. A gentleman back there talked about, you know, fear. A lot of parents, they can't get past the fear that their kid will still turn out fine, even if you don't beat them. And I think black people need to start seeing more examples of parents who don't do this. My whole last chapter is just that. I, I talked to parents who either stopped and they talk about the internal process that they had to go through. You know, half the issue was them. It's like the dog whisperer. I don't know if you guys watched that show, Caesar the Dog Whisperer. He's like, most of the problem is with the owner, not the dog. Same thing with, with, with parents, right? So they talk about their journeys and what they had to do. And they had a village of people around them. You know, parents who don't spank, talk. they don't speak up because, you know, oh, you're acting white. Or, well, you know, your child is different. People say, well, every child is different. Some kids you can talk to, some you got to beat. So then I'm like, well, you know, some wives and girlfriends are different. Sometimes you can talk to some of them and other wives and girlfriends you have to beat. And then people are like, oh, okay. You know, so but you're right. Mental illness is a big part of that. It happens in the school system. So I talk about the states where the paddling is going down. But we've got these charter schools, primarily in the north, where our kids are told to stand in a straight line. Don't talk. You know, so they're being subjected to this psychological abuse. And that's because these people have shrewdly listen to the ways in which African-Americans talk about their kids as needing more discipline. These kids today are so bad. These kids today have no respect. These kids grow up to knock their parents down. These kids are growing up to kill their parents. I'm like, show me the data. Show me the data. Actually, all studies show that millennials uh, um, are drinking less, using less drugs. They're more spiritual. Um, School violence is actually down. Violent crime is actually down. Okay, so by all measurements, it's the boomers that are the ones who jacked everything up and our kids are actually responding to. Right. Let's 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 be real here. (laughs) The boomers. So, you know, so we have to get past that propaganda. And also, you know, when I hear black folks say, well, I'm the man I am today. I'm the woman I am today because somebody beat me or I'd have been in jail or I deserved these beatings. You know, what they're really doing is co-signing a long-standing racist narrative that the only way to make black people law-abiding, moral, and civilized people is to process their bodies through violence. So we've got to change the narrative in so many different ways and start with us. Our kids are normal. There's nothing wrong with them. Yes. Oh, we've got to wrap up. They're kicking us out. And see, that's the true sign that you turned out fine when you decide to break the, the actual cycle. So they're about to kick us out. So, <laughs> so we want to thank Dr. Patton. Thank you.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.